The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa coming to you live for a second straight day from Vox Media's Code Conference in Los Angeles. John Ford is back in New York and Times Square at the Nasdaq market site. Pretty fascinating day in global markets, reversing some early losses following these comments from the Fed chair over at the Cato Institute, reiterating the Fed's commitment to bringing inflation back to target. ECB does raise 75 basis points. Goldman thinks the Fed will do the same in September. We are monitoring the health of Queen Elizabeth, and for that, once again, we'll turn to our Shep Smith back at HQ. Shep. Carl, thanks very much. We got word about four hours ago that the Queen's doctors were concerned for their for her health, as they put it. The 96-year-old currently at Balmoral Castle, where she spends most of her summers. She's not hospitalized, but Buckingham Palace released this statement. Following further evaluation this morning, the Queen's doctors are concerned for Her Majesty's health, and have recommended she remain under medical supervision. The Queen remains comfortable at Balmoral. That particular statement, remains comfortable at Balmoral, is a break from anything we've heard previously of the Queen from the palace. In recent months, in fact, the palace has said, frankly, as little as possible. So this language is seen as significant. The heir to the throne, Prince Charles, is with his mother, we're told, and Prince William and Prince Harry and and Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, are en route to Balmoral, according to their spokespeople. Minutes ago, the BBC reported a flight has arrived at Aberdeen Airport with members of the royal household all headed to Balmoral. Just yesterday, the Queen pulled out of a virtual meeting after her doctor advised her that she did need rest, according to Buckingham Palace. This is a live look at Aberdeenshire in, in Scotland, uh, where some of in the royal family are said to be arriving. The day before Tuesday, the Queen had welcomed the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. A short time ago, Ms. Truss tweeted, the whole country will be deeply concerned. Notes were passed at Parliament this morning, the leaders of the parties receiving word of the Queen's health. And notably, notably, BBC One, about two hours or so ago, switched from regular programming to rolling news coverage. So the Queen rests comfortably. Her family goes to be with her. And our own Wilfred Frost is live for us across the pond early at, or mid-afternoon London time. Wilf, what can you tell us? Well, Shep, as you are already suggesting, this is uh, clearly a a striking and sobering moment for the nation because it's being taken much more seriously than any of the other health issues that the Queen might have had over the last uh, couple of years. Two key distinctions that you've already alluded to. The first, that statement uh, from the palace, whereas in the past, as you said, they've said nothing at all or guided people towards just the fact that it was mobility problems. Uh, Today, they are not guiding just to that and made this uh, very uh, special and unexpected statement uh, saying that doctors are concerned for her. The other point that uh, all senior members of the family are traveling 
to be by her side. Prince Charles and Camilla already there, as is uh, one of her other children, uh, Princess Anne, uh, uh, while Prince William uh, and Prince Andrew and Prince Edward, uh, the, uh, of course, her grandson and uh, two other sons expected to be by her side shortly, having just landed at uh, Aberdeen Airport, uh, as you just mentioned. So clearly this is a serious situation, Shep. Uh, and you could grasp the level of seriousness earlier in Parliament, in fact, when the news spread amongst MPs during a debate and soon afterwards, we heard from the Prime Minister, Liz Trust, who said the whole country uh, will be deeply concerned by the news. My thoughts and the thoughts of the people across our United Kingdom are with Her Majesty the Queen uh, and her family at this time. And, uh, of course, the last time we did see her, Shep, uh, was when she appointed her 15th Prime Minister, Liz Trust, just two days ago. You know, Wolf, we, we've just received a statement from the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who tweeted, it is deeply concerning to hear today's news from Buckingham Palace. Tony Blair says, my thoughts and prayers are with Her Majesty the Queen and her family at this worrisome time. She, she's dealt, Wolf, with a number of health issues along the way, uh, but, but, but we've never seen anything uh, quite at this level. And, and it comes at a time when Britain is, is, in a, is in a world of turmoil. Uh, it, it, it's, its currency is at a 40-year low. Um, there are great concerns about what a long, cold winter could bring uh, with, with troubles, of course, and a war in Europe. Uh, times are difficult, and the Queen has always been such a rock of stability, never issuing her own opinions, but, but, but offering comfort to a, to a nation in, in difficult times. And now those times surround Her Majesty herself. Oh, absolutely right. And you, you mentioned a key word there in comfort. Of course, the actual issues, uh, the currency, the war is not her remit. That's for the head of government, a new head of government, her 15th, uh, Liz Truss. Uh, as head of state, though, she provides a stability that is above politics, uh, above it all, and makes her a constant uh, to Britons, to many Britons that have known uh, nobody else. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, steadiness she has provided cannot ever uh, be uh, under uh, uh, overstated. She's uh, done a remarkable job uh, at that throughout her 70-year reign and, uh, of course, her 96-year life. Uh, and uh, we, we hope uh, she continues uh, to do so. And uh, as you said, she, uh, the statement uh, says uh, she is uh, in comfort. And uh, I would also say as well, just two days ago, was carrying out official duties, which are, whatever way you, you frame this, whatever happens from now, just shows her commitment to that duty. Uh, and it was great to see in those pictures, uh, even if she looked frail, that she was looking positive and smiling. An extraordinary leader uh, across the world, Wilfred Frost, uh, formerly of CNBC, now with our sister network Sky News in the United Kingdom and live with us from our London newsroom this afternoon. So uh, the watch is on. Uh, the doctors say she, she rests comfortably. As you can see from the jet there, her family has arrived. Uh, and the prime minister and others within the government in the United Kingdom uh, wishing her uh, nothing but the best, saying that their thoughts and prayers are with the royal family. We'll keep watch as Carl and team watch over the markets throughout the rest of the morning and the afternoon. For now, Carl, back to you. Chef, thank you for that. And we'll continue to check in with you on any further developments as we monitor the Queen's health. In the meantime, my chef mentions we are here at Code. Let's kick off today's feed with Apple. CEO Tim Cook covering a lot of ground yesterday, talking overnight about his thoughts on user privacy, competition, and, of course, the vision of Steve Jobs. Take a listen. He had a uh, view 
that he really uh, drilled in me that Apple should own its primary technologies. And th that thinking led us to uh, go into the processor business for the Mac. Mm -hmm. You know, first, first on the iPhone. Our next guest was there in the room for the panel. Let's bring in uh, Verge Editor-in-Chief Neelay Patel, who joins us here on set. It's good to see you. It's good to be here in person uh, with you. Hold yes. on, you weren't just in the room. You were also in Cupertino earlier that day <laughs> and then flew here for the panel. I was not allowed on Tim's <laughs> jet down here, but I was in Cupertino in the morning, saw the new iPhones, and then got to see Tim and Johnny Ive and Lauren Powell Jobs. Uh, one thing Cook said was, look, I don't want to guess as to what Jobs would have thought about today's moment in tech, but it did lead to conversations about their current view of privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Privacy, innovation, and the like. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the panel was about Steve Jobs, about his legacy. He was the first guest here at Code 20 years ago. Uh, so a lot of the questions were, what would Steve think? And a lot of the answers were, his ideals still permeate the company, particularly around privacy, where Steve famously said, you got to ask, ask again, ask a third time. I think that is in some tension with where Apple is now. They are not the upstart. They're not fighting Microsoft anymore or any of the other competitors they had. And they are starting to build an ads business. And I think the most interesting thing that Cook said yesterday was digital advertising isn't bad on its face. It's bad if you track people without their consent. We think we can do it a better way. We have to see if any of that actually works. But it's a big move that they're making. Well, and that's my question. Do you buy that? And, you know, I think Kara said similar comments to us yesterday. She said that they're going to do it with privacy in mind. That's where they're starting from versus a Facebook or a meta that starts with tracking. And he called it surveillance even. I mean, he's not backing away from those comments, even as he pushes into advertising. So what's the bar? How will we know if Apple's doing this in the right, right way for consumer privacy? Right before Cook uh, came on stage, Evan Spiegel was on stage. What do you say? To save Snap. We're going to do low funnel, direct targeted advertising. We're going to go bottom of the funnel, find user intent. That's where the money is. Well, if that's where the money is, you need to know what people like. You need to yeah. serve them the right ads at the right time. You need to drive them to a purchase. If, Apple, if that's where Apple thinks the money is, they are going to have to profile some customers mm -hmm. in some way and serve them some ads with some targeting. And we have yet to see how any of that will actually work. John? Well, Neil, we, we've got a little bit of a roadmap to it with Apple's differential privacy approach where they think they can kind of create an anonymized cohort of people so you can target to them without knowing too much about them and without Apple retaining that information. And to me, I, I think interestingly, this isn't the first time that Apple would be venturing into this area. You remember IAD from back in 2010, more than a decade ago, uh, you know, Jobs himself made forays into this area, but back then Apple didn't have all of the ingredients to make the full dish. So much of what Tim Cook's Apple is able to do, I think, is put together ingredients that Steve Jobs himself didn't have and fulfill some of that vision. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think fundamentally, it was fascinating that both iAds and iTunes Ping came up on stage last night, like notable failures of the Steve Jobs era. Uh, but Cook brought up iAds and said, this is a thing we are already doing. Uh, and I, you know, we'll see if they can thread this privacy needle because you can do differential privacy. You can do all the, all the uh, uh, tracking on the phone, maybe locally, that Apple's really good at that. But at some point, you got to tell an advertiser whether they sold a product. 
And that is where things get really dicey. So it was interesting. They did talk about that Steve Jobs legacy a lot. And one of the most important things that is extremely successful for Apple is the idea that they should own its own primary technology that was left over from the Steve Jobs days. And that has led them to create their own chips, their own processors. Um, So where do you put that in the announcement yesterday? Because it was notable that only the highest end iPhone is going to have the newest processor. How does that fit into the Apple strategy? How they didn't change the price, didn't raise the prices, how they want to sell them going forward? Yeah, I think Apple is slowly running into the same supply chain problems as everybody else. You know, the the new chip, the A16 Bionic, uh, their first four nanometer chip with TSMC. So they're on the bleeding edge node, but they're keeping the old chip on the older node. I think they just have supply there. The other thing that I think uh, really interesting is Apple talks about owning its primary technologies. They bought Intel's modem division. Mm. We have not heard a peep about connectivity changing over in these iPhones. And that is like, what is the most primary technology of a phone is the connectivity, it's, it's modem stack. Uh, and they haven't seemed to crack it yet. Hmm. Still Ryan on Qualcomm. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll watch uh, the evolution of uh, Apple's strategy. In the meantime, switching gears to Twitter, how close was Disney to buying the company back in 16? Bob Iger explained why that deal fell through and what he learned about fake accounts on the platform. Here's what he said. Interestingly enough, because I watched, I read the news these days about it, we did look very carefully at all of the TikTok, I'm sorry, all of the Twitter um, users. I guess they're called users. Yes. Yeah. And we, at that point, estimated, with some Twitter's help, that a substantial portion, not a majority, were not real. How many did you? Add? I don't remember. I don't remember the number, but, but we nice. discounted the value ten percent heavily. 20, 20%. Don't remember. Okay, <laughs> don't remember. Um, uh, that was one, but that was built into our economics. Actually, the deal that we had was pretty cheap. Well done to Alex Heath uh, yeah. for asking those questions. <laughs> He's very proud of himself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, he actually steps into the Musk realm, though. He says, uh, maybe he saw what I saw. Yeah. I wonder what you think about that. Uh, well, Elon tweeted a story about the bots that Iger found. So I'm guessing that Bob Iger is about to show up in the Delaware Court of Chancery, uh, which is very interesting. You know, I think what Iger said was, sometimes you look at something, it's not your core business, and you need to walk away. I, Musk does not have that thinking, right? He doesn't have that filter. He walks into all kinds of businesses that are connected to broadly the future of humanity. And he said Twitter was a global consciousness. So we'll, we'll see the, the bots issue. I think for Disney, it was very clearly. Iger said, this is, there's a lot of negativity here that I don't want to be associated with as Disney. I don't think Musk cares about that question. He doesn't care about the, yeah, exactly that part of it. But it was almost like he, this, these comments could be coming from Elon Musk himself. Iger said, major distraction, having to manage circumstances that weren't even close to anything that we faced before. That sounds like something Musk could say, like this has just turned into a major distraction. And do you think that Iger actually gets subpoenaed for this, for these comments? Is that the next leg of this? I'm guessing that Musk lawyers are gonna do it. I, what, here's what I'll note. Iger did his due diligence before signing a contract <laughs> to buy Twitter and walked away. Musk seems to be doing it after he yeah. signed a contract. Yes. Cart after horse. <laughs> yeah. John? But yeah, Neil, this is the problem, right? I mean, this is back six years ago that Iger looked at this and saw that they were a bunch of bots, which, by the way, Elon Musk knew already because he was arguing about how he was going to be the one to solve the bot problem at at Twitter. So is this really helpful at all? I mean, what, Elon couldn't have called up Bob Iger and said, yeah, did you see a bunch of bots? 
when you looked in there six years ago? I mean, and, and Elon himself from the beginning was saying there are a bunch of bots, and yet he still waived due diligence. Does that make any sense? It doesn't to me. Uh, you know what Alex pointed out to me uh, after, we were, after the question we were talking? Iger looked at Twitter before Twitter rolled out MDAO, Monetizable Daily Active Users. So his bot calculation was actually unrelated to the current stakes of this trial, where Elon is saying the MDAO number is false and they're defrauding people. None of that was actually relevant at the time. They hadn't rolled out that number yet. So I'm not sure what is going to happen, except Elon's going to pull in every famous person to pressure Twitter into letting him out of this deal, but he can. Uh, Neely, why we have you? Tesla was another good topic yesterday. We heard from the transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg. He talked about his thoughts on Musk and the EV maker at large. Here's what he said. We don't have favorite companies in that no. sense. And, no. and so when they do something positive, I mean, first of all, the way that te Tesla uh, propelled the EV revolution that we're all now benefiting from and remains the largest uh, EV manufacturer in, in, in the U.S. is magnificent. And then there was California Governor Newsom weighing in on his state's role in Tesla's growth. Tesla's success was the regulatory environment of California. Mm -hmm. Without the regulations to accelerate and promote the technology, Elon Musk would not be allegedly the richest man in the world. Right well, he's now. in Texas now. Well, he's in Texas now, but 35,000 employees are in California, and they're increasing production by 50% in Fremont, and they just opened a new battery uh, a facility in Lanthrop. And we've got 100 others that want to be the next Tesla, and, you know, watch your, watch your back, Tesla. And the world you invented is about to compete against you across the spectrum. Interesting. Kara tried to tell Buttigieg that she thought it was a political mistake to exclude Musk from a lot of these conversations. But Buttigieg said even the Gigafactory design he thought was incredibly elegant. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these politicians at this point know they've got to play to the Tesla base, which cuts across both parties, and they've got to play to the domestic car manufacturing base, which desperately wants tax incentives to build here, has gotten some of those incentives. I think the big turn that is actually going to happen is next year the tax credit comes back to Tesla. So you buy a Tesla right now, you don't get the 7500 tax credit. Next year that's coming back to them, it's coming to other manufacturers, but it's going to push battery manufacturing to the United States over time because the credit phases into batteries. So Tesla is ahead there. They're already starting to do it. Everyone else is just announcing their plans. <laughs> They're ahead in many, many ways. Yeah, yeah. They've got several factories um, while the other ones are trying to ramp up. What did you make of Newsom's comment at the end there? Watch your back, maybe a little bitter that, you know, Elon Musk left California, <laughs> um, especially on a morning that we have this announcement from Rivian teaming up with Mercedes-Benz to share costs on an electric van, right? Right. Um, do you think by that time next year when the tax credits come into play that there's going to be more competition finally? feels like we're always talking about it and never seeing yeah. it. Uh, a big joke we have at The Verge is that every car is vaporware. You can just announce a render of a car yeah. and you get coverage for it, but no one is actually shipping these cars. Hopefully by next year we're actually seeing some movement on mass market cars that cost less than $100,000 that people can actually buy. Because that is actually, a, if you want to buy an EV right now, you're still pretty much looking at a Tesla. Yeah. We got through a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty productive code, I would argue, this year. Yeah, we haven't even talked about Andy Jassy and the, the union budget <laughs> question. We're going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, a great code, 20 years of Kara and Walt doing this. They invited me on First Code. It changed the course of my career, honestly. Uh, so it's been amazing to be part of this and watch Kara yeah, do the Yeah, you're last a huge one. part. Uh, Nile, thank you. Good thank to you see so you. Neelay Patel.
And still to come this hour, early Facebook, Etsy, and Spotify investor Jim Breyer, he's with us. Plus, we will hear from Amazon's Andy Jassy on the company's expansion plans. Tech Tech's coverage of the Code Conference continues right after this. We're just getting started. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Watching the broader market, S&P above 4K again. Let's talk about where you might find some opportunity in tech. Our Julia Boyston joins us this morning with a very prominent tech investor whose early bets included, oh, Facebook, Etsy, Spotify, and others. Julia. Thank you. And Jim Breyer, thank you so much for joining us. You invested in so many amazing companies, including Meta and your days at Excel. Now you are running your own firm, Breyer Capital. Um, and you have some interesting takes on the private market as well as the public market. But let's start with the public stocks. You have some big bets in the mega cap tech companies. Tell us which ones and why. You bet. Uh, and it's great to be back here. And congratulations to Kara on 20 years. Uh, I'll just run through the theory. The theory is buy the best houses in the best neighborhoods where there's key men that has five to 10 years left who can really impact the business. So I start with NVIDIA. I think NVIDIA, after this correction, is a deeply compelling three-year bet. More as well. So all of these are in the context of three years. They are so far ahead of everyone else in building the mm -hmm. semiconductor infrastructure for AI and quantum. Uh, they are so far ahead of anyone in China or in Europe. And so the two chip stocks I really like and continue to add to the position are AMD and NVIDIA. AMD for many of the same reasons. Lisa's a superb CEO. And what can one say about Jensen? A plus. And you're also, I understand, in Microsoft and Apple, also because you believe in those leaders. But I have to get your take on Meta. You were on the board of then Facebook, now Meta, for many years. I understand you're still in the stock. But what's your take on Zuckerberg transitioning this company to be all about the metaverse? Uh, I think the core business at Meta is strong, although it has headwinds, as Google and others do in the advertising space. I would love to see Mark lay out far more specifically what his metaverse strategy is. At the high level, I understand where he's going, knowing Mark extremely well. 
Uh, gaming is a very important part of the metaverse. Uh, they are building platforms that allow really interesting gaming applications on Oculus. And next year will be the big year with Apple, Sony, and others introducing glasses. But it's not a coherent strategy yet. That gives me pause. I think Mark will get there. Uh, the other thing I would say about Facebook that is not appreciated enough, Instagram and WhatsApp mm -hmm. are two of the most important applications worldwide. And recently we've seen some interaction on WhatsApp in India yeah. with shopping uh, and partnerships. WhatsApp and Instagram and where they're going are two of the truly worldwide horizontal applications that make a big difference. And I have to ask about TikTok, though, of because course. you're an investor in TikTok, and that is the company that everyone has been talking about here at this conference, both on stage and <laughs> off as a, as a mega threat. Um, some people saying it's a threat to society. Others saying it's just a threat to these social platforms. What do you think? It, it certainly is a threat. Uh, now, there are a number of different elements but what they did is poured very significant money into AI so that the user experience is trained in a way that content that really does become compelling for the user keeps coming up again and again and that user keeps training the algorithms. Uh, so they've taken a different approach than what Snap and Facebook and others, YouTube, have done. And they've also invested really smartly in, again, these underlying AI technologies. Uh, tremendous threat because advertisers love them. Uh, there are lots of risks in, ter in terms of when CFIUS and others examine yeah. where is that data, where does it go. Uh, but the, the company is knocking it out of the park. Also because it's just so addictive. <laughs> it's I addictive. mean, you log on and you Absolutely. lose an hour. Um, okay, so ByteDance, obviously a Chinese company, and okay. I know that you've been investing in Chinese companies for a long right. time. How are you feeling about it right now with the Chinese government adding some stimulus, but lockdown starting? Would you be a buyer of Chinese tech right now, or are you going to take some off the table? I'm not buying any Chinese stocks right now because I'm waiting to see how Central Congress and the Politburo shape out. Uh, if there are moderates who, again, uh, take a lead in the economic uh, leadership within China, uh, I am, again, very optimistic. Uh, we need China, particularly from a sustainability partner standpoint. So I really do hope there are ways where we can find ways to cooperate. But right now, uh, it's very, very challenging. You don't think there's been a change in the last few years with the lockdowns throughout COVID and the crackdown in terms of regulation? You think that if there's moderates in the Communist Party that it will kind of resume as was? You don't think the risk has increased? Oh, the risk has increased dramatically. Hmm. I, I misspoke then. Uh, the last two years, it's been almost impossible to invest in technology. Uh, much of our investment in China has been around health and health sciences. They have a tremendous shortage of nurses, doctors, aging population. And so they're not even big tech types of things. Uh, and in the US, I've doubled, tripled down on quantum and AI technologies where every week I'm meeting with Nobel laureates who are telling me this Nobel laureate isn't on the right research path on this physics uh, quantum effort. Uh, but we are going to see uh, here in the US uh, again, why I like the mega caps, they are so well positioned around AI and quantum 
Uh, if you take Alphabet and Sundar, what he said a couple nights ago, four years ago, he indeed did create an AI-first company. Ruth Peratt is a spectacular CFO. Uh, we have entrepreneurs who, Julia, you've met with, uh, I've worked with over the years, Thomas Tull and others, brilliant, brilliant people who are looking at the impact of quantum technologies in making our government and our country safer. Uh, it's a really exciting time uh, for many entrepreneurs if they're not looking at the stock market every day. That's, that's, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like you necessarily are being thrown by short-term dynamics, whether it's uh, uh, Reels monetization at Meta or gaming the channel correcting at NVIDIA. Right? How are you thinking about short-term challenges uh, in, in terms of your longer-term your longer -term plays? The short-term challenges, I think, are deep, in many cases fundamental, take six to nine months, if you will, to sort through, and then we'll see where we are. But rarely is there a time when I'm investing where I've seen NVIDIA or some of these other companies, Microsoft, that are so well managed. International business has slowed because of the dollar. Uh, there's risk in China. There's continued macroeconomic risk in, in Europe. And yet the underlying lead that these companies are exerting in the most important strategic areas of the business give me optimism that if it's a three-year perspective, uh, people will make a lot of money. If it's a one-year perspective, flip a coin. Right. Yeah. But valuations at the, in aggregate right here you think are still rich, reasonable, overdone on the downside? I, I think they're, they're not, they're closer to rich than they are to being on the downside. But again, I just don't know. If you take Apple, a company I've loved forever, uh, and you look at Tim Cook and the legacy he continues on with Steve, and they were, of course, here. Uh, I don't think what's factored into Apple at this point is the car. And everything I'm hearing about the car is spectacular. What that means when they deliver don't have the specifics, but what I do know suggests that is that next amazing breakout product potentially for Apple. And meanwhile, uh, their phones, iPads, Mac Pros, on and on, the new watch, uh, they're building a really good business. So they need another breakout product over the next couple of years. I think it's the car. Uh, I'm hearing they have a A-plus team on the car, but I wish I could tell you more about timing. <laughs> You're teasing us with that. Yeah, Jim, uh, back to startups and valuations for a moment. Good to see you, by the way. Um, how many of your portfolio companies are either raising now, raising capital, or you expect will need to in the next year? And, and how many of those are going to face, you think, a potentially lower valuation? What are you going to tell them? Yeah, I, I think, uh, John, great seeing you. The reality is uh, the markets are the markets. Companies that went out and raised money, call it before January or February of this year, are marked up too high. And so it's a constant education process. The best companies will just say, uh, we're going to go out and raise money at a lower price. And there's nothing wrong with that, uh, I think. I think there has to be reality. A lot of companies have enough cash to get through another nine or 12 months. But I don't think in many cases they'll be able to raise money at higher prices in nine to 12 months. It's, it's hard to say, uh, but I always like telling the entrepreneurs, look, I'm across the board cutting the market cap uh, internally 20%. If the stock market in June, if we had these kinds of drops in the very best companies, 
I'm just cutting across the board, the paper valuation. And so most of what I keep on the books, I keep at cost. And then I do something where they're marked up to the financial rounds if it's a astute financial investor. But even on those, I've just cut 20% wow. to play it safe wow. and reflect, I think, what is the public market reality. Well, certainly fascinating to hear your perspective on all this from the public markets to the private markets and that Apple car, which I cannot wait to see. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for joining us here. Always a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. And John, good seeing you. Good to see you. And there's that 20% number again. That's the magic number for cuts anyway <laughs> in 22. After the break, why Bob Iger says not all streamers are created equal. There's that created equal thing again, too. We say that a lot. He's going to pick some winners as well. We'll tell you about Tech Check Returns in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm pretty certain that, first of all, linear TV that we talked about, cable and satellite, is marching in, in a constant direction toward a great precipice, mm -hmm. and it's going to be pushed off. Mm -hmm. A lot of people subscribe to cable and satellite television today because of certain programming, but also because of habit and complacency. Former Disney chief Bob Iger at Code last night talking about, in his words, the death of linear television. But he also discussed which streaming services he thinks will lead the way in the future. I don't think all streamers are created equal. I do not believe all streamers that are in it today will survive. There are going to be haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. well, now that you're not working, can you name some names? I, you know, I can tell you that I believe that, that, well, Netflix is going to continue to thrive. They could have some issues now, but you know, they're yeah, not going away. Seems Clearly, I'm a big believer in Disney. Mm -hmm. They've got the IP. They've already proven they can be successful in that business. Pretty fascinating. He mentioned Netflix, Disney, Apple and Amazon. The others, Julia, uh, he said some of them have tough hands. You need a lot of capital. Yeah, need a lot of capital. And also just maybe we're going to see more consolidation as they get bigger to compete. I mean, we've already seen Discovery Warner Brothers, but it was so interesting hearing him reflect on the fact that for so many years they were selling content to Netflix. You know, he put it in terms of, you know, give, selling nuclear weapons technology uh, to a country that should not have had it um, and really acknowledging that they helped fuel the rise of this giant. And now... There, there's a situation where Netflix and Disney are really going head to head. And you have to think back and wonder what would have happened if they had done a Disney Plus, a direct to consumer earlier. A on. little bit earlier, yeah. they would have had an even bigger head start. And meanwhile, you know, content spend has just ballooned. It's become so enormous. And you, know, you talk to people here in L.A. who are selling the shows. They say, oh, they're, they're sitting a little bit longer, a little yeah. bit harder to sell. What do you think that means for next year? For example, are we going to see these 
double-digit billion-dollar content spend figures, or will next year be the year that it actually comes down? Well, I think they're, they're, the commitments are made long in advance. And in terms of the consumer, they're going to still have plenty of shows long in advance. But we are hearing more about cuts. I mean, reports of cuts coming at Netflix. I mean, but this not is, content. Well, no, but it, if you're doing overall cuts, swag. But you have to wonder, <laughs> you know, when is that going to trickle down? Or yeah. are they going to be more disciplined in terms of the types of content? One thing I hear from a lot of people is that Netflix is no longer going to be committed to that binge model over the long term. Mm. It's going to make a lot more sense for them to drip feed their fans episodes because people just binge and cancel and that, that's something that they're reckoning with. Julia, I'm starting to hear about content cuts. I mean, maybe it's, it's small scale right now having to do with animation, anime, but isn't Warner Discovery kind of mothballing older uh, episodes yeah. to some things? Uh, HBO as well. Does that suggest uh, that from a Discovery uh, and I mean content discovery, user interface point of view, and also just what these uh, providers are willing to continue paying for, that there's some belt tightening going on that might affect the overall content market? Absolutely belt tightening going on. But you have to remember there's such a bubble right now and for the past year, years or so of content investment. So, yes, I think Warner Discovery is the one to watch. Um, we know that they've already done some cuts. They've pulled some content off that platform. And David Zaslav has to still make billions of dollars of cuts uh, to, to hit those numbers and hit those targets. So you have to wonder when that's going to trickle down to the content spending itself. And I think there's just going to be a lot of scrutiny about which content delivers subscriber growth and retains subscribers. They're going to be worried about churn, especially as we go into the fall. And the one thing a lot of people have been talking about, including Bob Iger, is the importance of these ad-supported services. People will tolerate commercials if they don't have to spend as much for right. content. We also haven't mentioned Andy, Andy Jassy arguing that a prime uh, a subscription means less churn if you need it for other things yeah. other than watching content. Speaking of content uh, and Amazon, uh, NFL season opener tonight uh, on both NBC and Peacock. Uh, Julia caught up with League Commissioner Roger Goodell at Sun Valley earlier in the summer outlining his vision for what's next for the league. Take a listen. I clearly believe we'll be moving to a streaming service. Uh, I think that's best for the consumers at this stage. Um, but we have so much interest right now, and there's so much innovation around that and how we're going to be able to change the way people watch football. And I think um, we'll probably have some decision by the fall. Fascinating as we await Bill's Rams tonight. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to watch the ratings for those games on Amazon because I have heard that Amazon's been telling advertisers they expect ratings to be down as much as by half from where they were on Fox. So there's this question of whether or not they start slow and then gradually people get used to watching football games on Amazon Prime. But this, th these ratings, these, uh, these particular games are going to be closely scrutinized because everyone's figuring out where football, where these premium sports should go in the future. And of course, we're watching to see NFL Sunday ticket. Who's going to get that deal? Amazon's in the running, but so is Google, and so is Apple, and so is ESPN. So uh, th that one we're expecting in the next Getting couple close, months. Hopefully. Getting close. Yeah. Uh, we can't wait. Be sure not to miss the kickoff of the NFL season tonight. Tune in Peacock and NBC. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern time. There's been a lot of discussion at Code around companies cutting forecast costs and the slowing economy. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy addressed their own pandemic overinvestment last night. Have a listen. We weren't sure what was going to happen in 21, let alone 22. And so we made the decision, which I think was a good decision at the time, 
that we would err on the side of building more because we didn't want to constrain consumers because we know we, we, we wanted to serve what they, you know, the, the straits people were in at that time. And we also didn't want to constrain sellers. And so we knew that if we guessed wrong higher, if we were higher than we needed, that we'd eventually grow into that footprint. Our next guest thinks that some investors are getting cold feet and founders could be in for a rough winter. Joining us now, the production board founder and CEO and former Google executive, David Friedberg. David, welcome Thank to our you. Code Set. Um, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure if you just heard Jim Breyer. He said that valuations are still on the richer side. And he's basically cutting every company, he said, in his portfolio that's private by 20% that paper valuation. Um, Where are you in terms of that? Well, I think there's a little bit of a trend in Silicon Valley right now with venture capitalists of kind of having their head in the sand. I call it like Schrodinger's valuation. As soon as you open up the box, the cat's going to be there or it's not going to be there. So no one wants to actually know what their companies or their portfolio is actually worth. And that's, I think, limiting why a lot of investors don't want to go price B, C, D rounds. Because as soon as you do that and you say, hey, your company's worth 70% less than your last round, you know that that's going to affect your own portfolio. And then you got to take the write downs on your portfolio. So I have, in my 20 years in Silicon Valley, never seen the entire venture capital industry take August off. I mean, the amount of like out of office, I'm in the south of France, I'm in Aspen, right? Like no one's been around for about a month. And I think no one really wants to face the music. But I guess the question is, how long does this last? When do they get back in? What are the valuations going to look like six months, a year from now? I I, I think one way to think about the proxy on this, so many companies, nearly every high-flying company raised money last year. And they typically raised, let's say, two to three years of capital. Once you're within a year of running out of capital, then you really have to say, okay, I'm going to take the hit now. And so you'll start to see the investors, you know, that are in these companies saying, OK, you know, now it's time. I'm willing to take the write down. But let's just wait. Let's see what happens with the market. Let's give it a few more months. Let's give it another quarter. The Fed is going to do this. This is going to happen in Europe, Ukraine. This. Everyone's got a rationalization for delay. But once you're within that one year time frame, you got to go to market and you got to take the hit. And so given that a lot of folks raised last summer in that kind of that was the big kind of boom quarter, I think you'll see a lot of folks coming back to market Q1, Q4, and really starting to take those hits. Well, but that's interesting. Just, yeah. So activity picks up in 23. That's your base case. I think, I think that's prob- it's, a, it's a distribution. So I think you'll probably see most of the activity start to happen. But you know, folks are going to push it a bit. It's not like last year when folks that had three years of runway are out raising huge rounds because the market was so nuts. Now we're in a very different climate. And uh, by the way, David- a lot of that runway is going to get extended. Folks are doing cuts and, and so on. So you know, it could get pushed out even further. Yeah, important to note. But David, given that... Um- the U.S. economy is, is two-thirds consumer. How important is holiday going to be, holiday spending, and you know, the impact trickles down into uh, enterprise and, and cloud software as well, overall demand. How important is that going to be in uh, what valuations are and what the overall economic mood is when these companies are coming back to the trough? So a lot of businesses in the D2C space, the direct-to-consumer space over the past year have had their own set of nightmares. And this is a result of the third-party tracking associated with Apple and Facebook and so on. Because of that, the cost of acquisition has doubled, tripled, and the unit economics have fallen apart for a lot of D2C businesses. You've seen this in the public markets with some of the public companies. We're seeing it heavily in the private markets. So I think that there's actually an even more kind of concerning um, riff underway right now, which is how are the economics going to play out 
in the consumer businesses over this coming uh, winter season, not just is there going to be activity. Let's say activity drips, dips by 30%. That is a very different situation than if your unit economic cost, your cost to acquire a customer, doubles or triples, and the business is in a lot more trouble. And so we are already seeing a lot of that washout happen, um, but certainly consumer activity is scary because we're seeing consumer credit rise, home prices are, and inventories rise, and so there's real concern right now on what is the financial condition of the average American consumer and being able to spend in Q4 uh, and it's a it's a more broader economic thing than just how it's going to affect tech. So uh, you're you're not you're not fooled by talks of excess savings or untapped HELOC equity, right? You don't you don't think there's yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at new credit um, filings by the St. Louis Fed, you can see these numbers have climbed significantly over the last few months. And so a lot of that excess savings is getting burnt up. And by the way, this is doubly worse with inflation. So. <sighs> I'm now spending more on food, I'm spending more on gas, and I'm, I'm taking out a lot of credit, and my savings have declined by 30%, 20-30%. Uh, so there's a real crunch happening. So <clears throat> a lot of the um, surplus categories, crypto was a great surplus category. Everyone got excited and bought a bunch of crypto. Those are dead, right, down 99%. NFTs are down 99%. So it's going to work its way down. Ultimately, the essentials, food and energy, are last to get yeah. hit in the U.S., but you know, you'll see these kind of surplus categories get eaten away first. Hmm. Um, an interesting look at the same time, David, there's so much dry powder still out there that needs to be put to work. Uh, thanks for your insights, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great. David thanks Sleeper. for having me. Still to come, much more on the release of the new iPhone 14. Plus, are the watch and AirPods the next growth drivers? What's this uh, signal about the consumer? Don't go away. We'll have all that coming up. Let's get a gut check on chips. Stiefel initiating AMD at buy, seeing more than 50% upside ahead. The firm expecting AMD to expand profitability and deliver strong growth as it continues to execute its product roadmap and expand its IP portfolio. Stiefel also initiating NVIDIA and Intel at hold. And Citi opening a positive catalyst watch on Global Foundries, saying they expect a positive update from the company at their conference today which could drive the stock higher. You can read more about those calls and more on cnbc.com slash pro. We're back in a moment. Turning back to Apple, got a lot of product announcements yesterday. No major price increases for the iPhone in the U.S. But we did get some updates for both the Apple Watch and for AirPods, Steve Kovac is with us, has more. Hey, Steve. Hey there, John. Yeah, more than half the show at Apple yesterday spent on the Apple Watch and AirPods, and that's because even though the iPhone accounts for most profits and sales, it's wearables and accessories where a lot of the hardware growth is happening, despite a little slump last quarter. So on the watch side, not a lot new there, at least for the regular Series 8 model announced yesterday. The only significant new feature there is actually a temperature sen sensor for monitoring ovulation cycles, but it won't do much else. It can't even take your temperature to see if you have a fever, for example. And that's largely the same device it has been for the last couple of years. But the watch has a lot of room to grow. Tim Cook said last year, three out of every four watch buyers are buying the device for the very first time. And remember, there are more than one billion iPhoneers out there, so there's a lot of room to grow. Plus, marketing cheaper watches yesterday for kids so parents can track them if they don't have an iPhone. And the new SE model, which is cheaper, has a, a lot of the baseline 
next-level features most people will want. Uh, by the way, there was also that $800 Apple Watch Ultra, which is a new category, going after those lucrative high-end fitness tracker market like, that's dominated by folks like Garmin right now. And more improvements on the AirPods Pro. It's the first update since the model first launched three years ago. Better battery life, noise cancellation, wireless charging, and the like. And there's also more room for AirPods to grow. Apple telling everyone yesterday the Pro is the best-selling model of AirPods. Uh, and look, these uh, products are also emblematic of Cook's Apple. Maximize iPhone sales and then sell more products and services around the iPhone to generate more revenue and growth. No real surprises yesterday, but that's the recipe Cook's been using for most of his tenure, John. Yeah, the biggest surprise might have been that prices didn't go up um, in the U.S., on the phone itself, but it seems like we should be thinking of this more as a basket strategy. Maybe that makes it more likely that that customer attaches uh, a watch or AirPods or maybe multiple if they're buying gifts. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the lock-in, right, John? And and I was, I was speaking to uh, CFO Luca Maestri during their last earnings about this, and I asked him about price increases. And he said, look, it's going to likely be okay in the U.S. with a strong dollar, but he did hint we could see price increases uh, across uh, other regions like the U.K. and Japan uh, where the dollar is a little strong compared to currencies there. And that's exactly what happened yesterday, John. All right, Steve Kovac, thank uh, you. Steve, thank you. <laughs> um, and Carl, that's a wrap from Code. I mean, it's been a busy few days, and it's been nice to be together. I was on the East Coast last week. Now you came over to the West Coast. John's going to be over because conference season is only getting started. I mean, we're going to be busy. Uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, September is going to bring a lot of color, uh, corporate commentary. We've been saying that for a while, and Code really got it kicked off. Um, fascinating look, though, at the ways in which companies are looking at costs yeah. and regulation. And innovation, I guess that's been the hallmark of code for so long. It felt like the takeaway was maybe a bit of caution, too, yeah. from the tech giants. Uh, so we were uh, pleased to be here. Our thanks uh, to Vox, of course, and the code conference itself. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.